months ago yeah out of the blue out of the fucking, out of the blue. fucking blue and it's just like on a, as we are playing the fucking unsolved mysteries theme <laughs> i'm watching it and i put it on my snapchat yeah i'm on binge and i just, I just love that little thing and she's like yo we need to do a podcast and i was just like uh you're like the fifth person said we should do a podcast and this is like and she was on me about it and i was just like well well, I can't just shut her up, so we might as well just do it. And like, yeah, why not? <laughs> and we're two years slow, but that's all right. Right, and and it was like you know we 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 hadn't we hadn't seen each other like face to face in about four years, so it was just like mm-hmm. well, I don't you know I don't know how we're gonna pull this off. And then twenty episodes later, I mean, we got that LeBron and referee chemistry. I really think we um, are such a unique podcast because, first off, we're two badass motherfuckers from two different types of, like, lives, and we're doing this all through fucking camera screen. Like, I bet you we travel the most to see each other. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just like, this is just the make We do the same thing. We have no fucking experience of podcasts. We have no the fucking idea of what we're doing and we're just you know just I don't know if you guys caught on or not, but we have no idea what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And we always fear that there's technical difficulties that are awaiting us and you never know what You have episode. to tell your story now, your technical difficulties. <laughs> My technical difficulties. There's been at least three occasions where we have been about three th- uh three fourths into an episode and the program that we use to to record, it go runs out of storage, or where I go, my Wi Fi goes out, or whatever the fuck. And it's just like, oh boy, I have to tell Cam, and she's like, what the fuck? And I mean, and, and this is like, it was like, man, we're, bitch. <laughs> but I mean, look, as we don't take ourselves seriously, but as Gibby and Ferg from True Crime All the Time says, you know, we take what we do seriously. And, you know, that said, the episode we have for tonight, like, I 
I didn't know how we were going to do it because, you know, the the synopsis of this show is to do murders in Illinois. And that is something that we are going to be committed to in season two. We got a lot of fun, uh, a lot of crazy murders, I should say, down the pipeline for that next season. But this one, it's kind of like a... It's OJ Simpson murder thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and to, me, to me, and it was like... And I'm a huge wrestling fan, and you know, for for a certain generation, that's kind of like our, in a weird way, it's like our Kennedy. Like we know what we were doing when we found out that Chris Benoit, who we're going to be covering tonight, when we found out that Chris Benoit died, and we found out the extent of what happened. So I mean, it's very something that you know. Uh, my friends who, who watch wrestling with me, my brothers, like, this is something, like, we have been real, really fascinated about, and it's been over 10 years. Mm-hmm. It has. My brother was into it. My dad was into it. I watched wrestling. I was a big Goldberg fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know I... I didn't understand why, because I remember it was so big for so long, and I didn't know why it started, it stopped, you know? Mm-hmm. And this- yeah, and there's a lot of factors. I mean, um, as you had said, and oh, I'm blanking out on one of our devoted listeners who uh, who wanted to do his podcast with me, sports uh, a wrestling podcast. Oh, I'm like, this is... A- oh, Michael Norm! Mike, yeah, yeah, and, and he would be the first, you know, to tell you, like, you know, WCW is not even in existence anymore and it's been like that way for almost 20 years and when they left it kind of a lot of that you know wrestling audience left with it and it's been dwindling a lot like you had an audience wrestling in the 90s and stuff you had an audience of 10 million people every week and now it's at like 2 million and I'm sadly one of those 2 million and it's like the product is not look Stone Cold ain't coming out that uh, door it's it's not the same. It's not, and it and and partially why it's not the same is because you can't actually hit people. You can't be more physical with them because you will hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something within this, you know, these the two parter, and especially when we did the the two part the the second part tomorrow when we really talk about like the legacy of this of the whole Crispin Wall saga. And how it mm-hmm. really changed the business, both from a credibility standpoint, from how the the media views it, how they, you know, um, do head trauma injuries and concussion protocol and drug policy. So this was really kind of a game changer. And, you know, it was a really paradigm shift in the business. Some would say for the better and some would say for the worse. But, I mean, that's for... You know, you guys decide. Um, that said, before we go uh, start on this pod trip to the backwoods of Georgia, uh, should we hit them with a little bit of disclaimer? We should. We should. Um, excuse me, I had to burp on that one. Sorry. Okay. So, yep, one. Um, but here we're we're just here to do do the thing that we have been doing for the last twenty episodes, six months. We're just here to tell you guys information that we've learned from you know police reports medical reports um libraries the internet just notes we have found if there's anything um 
that is incorrect that offends anyone in any nature, please let us know. Hit us up on Facebook at Illinois with Bird and Cam. Um, that's the best way to contact us. We respond very quickly. Um, let us know if we're doing something right, if we're doing something wrong. Um, and that anything medical related that we talk about is oh, just opinions. Don't yeah. take what we say. Don't don't take it. Don't. Don't listen to us when yeah. we talk medically. We're not yeah. doctors. We're just we're just we're just offering our two cents. Like what the fuck are we to yeah. you know say and we're just talking about experiences and shit like that. That's all. Alrighty, and that's it. I tried to like get a Snapchat, but like it just looked terrible if you saw. I was just like, oh fuck it. Um Yeah, it looked like death right now. You did. Uh that's it. You ready to do the damn thing? I'm ready to do the damn thing. Alright, and that's it. Christopher Michael Benoit was born in Montreal, Quebec on May 21st, 1967, the son of Michael and Margaret Benoit. During his childhood, uh, Benoit grew a love for wrestling, idolizing the likes of the Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington, and Bret the Hitman Hart. At 12 years old, he attended a local wrestling event where the two uh, wrestlers stood out above everyone else in Stampede Wrestling. Benoit trained to become a professional wrestling at the Dungeon, that uh, was uh, founded by Bret Hart's father, Stu Hart. And in ring, Benoit emulated again the Dynamite Kid and Bret Hart, who actually became one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, uh, cultivating a high-risk style and a physical appearance more reminiscent of the Dynamite Kid. And we'll, as Cam will get explained, and it's, be, it's kind of eerie as we go along, but... We'll, we'll continue that. I know, I was going to say, I, when I was going through the notes, it's just, it is eerie. It's very, it's very, it's inter- it's very interesting, but it is kind of creepy and kind of eerie. Um, but back to Benoit, he began his career in 1985, actually, at the age of 18. Stampede Wrestling, promoted by, who is the patriarch of the Hart Dynasty, which includes Bret the Hitman Hart. From the beginning, there were similarities between Benoit and Billington, who, which were apparent. As Benoit adopted many of his moves, such as the diving headbutt, which becomes notorious, in mm-hmm. the suplex, the homage was complete with his initial billing as Dynamite Chris Benoit. Now, it's something to think, oh, that's a glowing tribute to the Dynamite Kid. But let's peel back the covers for a second here, right. folks. Dynamite Kid was a revolutionary for his time. Wrestling can really be described as a cosmetic sport, or cosmetic, uh, no, cosmetic, sorry, sport more than any, as it is in those days. It wasn't really about the technical ability. It was more or less if you had a certain look. And at 5 foot 8 inches, Dynamite Kid was considered to be a small man in a big man sport. And this is where you had the people like Hulk Hogan, Macho Man Randy Savage, Andre the Giant, the Ultimate Warrior. These tall or even bulky men ruled the fucking roost in those days of wrestling. Nevertheless, Dynamite Kid became a legend in his own right. And he became an innovative in-ring performer with a level of athleticism combined with wrestling styles incorporated all over the world that no one was doing at the time. But that said, 
there was a really darker side to the Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington. Um, he was verbally, mentally, and physically abusive to colleagues, and more so to his first wife, to the point that, get this, Cam, he once put a gun into her mouth in a frenzy that would later be identified as steroid rage. And the abuse got so bad that the wife, who was actually Bret Hart's sister-in-law, um, she thought about killing her two kids and herself just to end her misery, which she unveiled what? in a 1990s Inside Edition interview. But she got the courage to take the kids and leave Billington. In 1997, at the age of just 38, after having a great deal of complications that he experienced with walking due to the large number of injuries he suffered during his career, Billington lost the use of his left leg. He had a paralyzed left leg and he used a wheelchair. He was cared by his second wife. And Billington was told he was never to be, never going to walk again. And throughout the rest of his life, he suffered from heart problems, brought on from steroids abuse. And, and he actually died a couple of weeks ago, December 5th, 2018, oh, on his 60th birthday. So, I mean, it's, it's very, like I said, just... You know, you idolize someone like that. And Chris Law, like the daughter of my kid, was five foot eight. And as we're going to talk about, he would run in those same problems that Tom Billington had. Just not even we're going to talk about personal, but also professional. You know, he this was still a cosmetic sport. This is a big man sport. And it's always been perceived like that. And you always see, you know, the face of WWE. Like you said earlier, Cam, you talked about Goldberg. Like that's a guy. Like when you see, as they say, you, you go in a you go in a plane, right, or you go in an airport, mm-hmm. and he walks, and you stop, and you see, oh my God, who you is that guy? You know exactly who he yeah, is. Yeah, or Andre the Giant, or the Big Show, or Macho Man, and you see somebody like a Chris Benoit, you see somebody like a Daniel Bryan, or a Dean Malenko, or Eddie Guerrero, and you see mm-hmm. that's just a, a regular guy. So I mean, that's what that perception of really wrestling promoters and that industry yeah. of what they use. They were know. just actors. It was mostly acting that they had to have the look that actors and actresses mm-hmm. have and such. Yeah. Interesting. And like you were just saying, this is a caution this is going to become a cautionary harbinger of things to come for our episode. So throughout the nineteen nineties, Benoit would hone his talents all over the world. In England, Germany, Japan, Canada, and even the United States, where he would work in companies such as Extreme Wrestling Championship, um, and especially World Championship Wrestling. WCW. Yep. In his six-year stint with WCW, Benoit would hold numerous championships and gain recognition by the wrestling media and his peers as one of the best technically sound wrestlers in the world. In addition, he was involved in intriguing storylines, such as joining the famed Four Horsemen faction, uh, led by Nature Boy, Ric Flair. We all all know Ric Flair. And the cruiserweight feuds with uh, Dean Malenko, Chris Jericho, and Eddie Guerrero, his real-life best friends. But it was one feud that would have an everlasting impact on that Benoit. But as improbable and eventually tragic events unfolded, the wrestling industry as a whole. So in 1997, 
Uh, Benoit was placed in a feud with Kevin Sullivan, who was also the head booker of WCW. Now, for you guys who don't know what, rest, uh, um, what a booker is in wrestling, these wrestling terms, booker is pretty much the guy who makes wrestling matches and storylines. And to make it even juicier, Sullivan wrote a storyline that Benoit was having a make-believe affair with Sullivan's real-life wife and on-screen valet, Nancy, who was known as Woman. To make it real, Sullivan had forced Benoit and Nancy to spend time together, hold hands in public, and share hotel rooms. And guess what happened, Cam? Just guess what happened? Oh, no. It actually developed to a real-life affair off-screen, because of course it does. And no. years later, Sullivan would always be made fun of as the guy who booked his own divorce. It sounds like, and it really sounds like something you see, something we see a lot out of UIS. I mean, <laughs> and as a result, That's so right? And just like her face, she's just like fucking terrible. Uh, and we know people. We're not gonna name names, but we was like, I can, I see that. I was just like, you know, I this is just ready made for that person. You, you, you brought this to UIS, Birdman. I, well, you know, <laughs> these wrestling moves. <laughs> but as a result, Sullivan and Benoit had a real contentious backstage relationship, which could be described as best storyline rise. The the feud continued over the course of a year with Sullivan having his henchmen apprehend Benoit in a multitude of matches. And this would culminate in a retirement match at the 1998 Bash of the Beach. Uh, guys, if you know if this is right or wrong, I think it's 97, 98, but whatever the fuck. But Benoit defeated Sullivan and caused Sullivan to retire. But this was done to have uh, explained Sullivan to go more behind the scenes so he can focus more on booking but as we would get you know further this would be a problem for Benoit and many of his colleagues oh. but going into that Benoit would be in, uh, in the WCW until uh, 2000 so the new millennium Mm-hmm. And before jumping ship with Milenko Guerrero and fellow wrestler Perry Saturn to World Wrestling Foundation, or that, excuse me, oh, excuse God, me World Wrestling Federation, excuse me. <laughs> oh, oh, Federation. Come on, Federation. I was just like, <laughs> working with a lot of different foundations at work. I, Sorry. I, I, I will say this, um, and it's funny that, yeah, I guess for a real life wrestling fan, I hate to interject, but like WWF. Ended up becoming the WWE, and you know why? Because the World Wildlife Foundation sued the WWF. Yeah. You fuck. That's funny. Right. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, that's why I was like, wait, I know the WWE. Oh man, but um, that blew my mind. Fun fact of the day. Yeah. Um, but back to um. Uh, Benoit and the whole gang leaving, <clears throat> excuse me, they were alleging that they were being held back by WCW uh, management, among other people. Uh, and it would be a career renaissance of sorts for Benoit Guerrero, who would go on to become bigger stars in the WWE. And then it was bigger than they'd ever dream of, too. Mm-hmm. During this year, Chris and Nancy would start a family of their own. 
When Nancy gave birth to a son, it, they named him Daniel, and it was on February 23rd, which is um, two days before my dad's birthday. Mm. Um, but yeah, sorry. And they would be married by November. It wasn't all sunshine and lollipops for these two, though, for the marriage. In 2003, Nancy filed for a divorce from Benoit, citing the marriage as it pretty much being broken and alleging cruel treatment. She claimed that he would break and throw furniture around. She later ended up dropping the suit, and she also dropped a restraining order she filed. It's worth noting that, according to the Fayette County court uh, records, Benoit was additionally ordered to undergo evaluation treatment for drug and alcohol abuse and to follow recommended treat and, or treatment and to order respondent to undergo a batterer's intervention program. So this is just, yeah, kind of sort of a really toxic environment in the Benoit household. So while Benoit's personal life was in a disarray of sorts, his professional life was on the cups of reaching the zenith. Uh, zenith, there we go. On January 25th, 2004, he won the 30-man Royal Rumble when he entered number one and held the record at the, I think that lasted for uh, 12 years, where he outlasted 60, 62 minutes. And he last Holy eliminated shit. the seven foot, five hundred pound Big Show, and with this he earned a world title shot at WrestleMania 20, the biggest annual event promoted by WWE. And Benoit would challenge the then world heavyweight champion Triple H at WrestleMania and the Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels. Do you please tell me you remember those guys? Yes, I've watched. Oh my gosh, I've watched it before. My fam, my parent, not my parents. My dad, and my brother used to watch it all, all the time mm-hmm. it was fun to watch it just right i love like all blatchy people mm-hmm. <laughs> so so benoit would end up again he would go against triple h and Shawn michaels in the main event of wrestlemania 20 and on march 14 2004 he won the world heavyweight championship by forcing <laughs> Triple H to tap out to his signature submission move, the Crippler Crossface, and what many considered one of the greatest matches in WrestleMania and company history. And after the match, Benoit, visibly emotional, celebrated his win with the WWE uh, champion, his best friend Eddie Guerrero. And I guess, you know, as a fan, and I, and I remember watching that as it happened, even being 12 years old, like that is one of the coolest moments uh to experience because again you know we talked about earlier how it's always a big man sport and these yeah. are guys that uh were considered vanilla midgets that they can never sell they can never get to the top and to see them you the know underdogs. at the top of their sport it's it was just a really cool visual yeah no i i love when when the the underdogs show up and take the show that's it's my favorite favorite Storylines, my favorite movie line, the whole shebang. It's it is my favorite. Oh. Um, but back to the uh, awesome win. Um, for Benoit, it looked like the good times would roll, but very very soon after, a personal tragedy would affect Benoit, and that's what's that's what we believe started his steady downfall. On November thirteenth. 
2005, Eddie Guerrero was found dead in his hotel room. After years of steroid and alcohol abuse, it caused his heart to give out. That following night, Raw, the WWE flagship show, held a Guerrero tribute. Benoit, which you can see online, is just utterly devastated at the loss of his best friend and was very emotional during a series of video testimonials. He eventually started breaking down on camera. Some of his colleagues state that he would never be the same after Eddie's death. In an interview uh, years later, Vicky Guerrero, the uh, the widow of Eddie, noted that Chris was wailing like a child at the funeral. And it was times it was insinuated that she felt more for what Chris was going through than what she did. In the uh, same week on SmackDown, uh, Benoit defeated Triple H in a tribute match to his fallen friend. Following the contest, Benoit, Triple H, and Dean Malenko all assembled in the ring and pointed to the sky in salute of his best friend, uh, Eddie Guerrero. And, and and it was, and you know, I think that was pretty much, as we said in the beginning, it was a, that was a big trigger, you know, um, that we think is in his psychological breakdown. But in the lead up, there were other wrestlers' depths um, that was really close to Triple H. Not Triple H, but uh, to Chris Benoit. Um, there was, um, I'm blanking on a few, but I, uh, the big boss man, Ray Trailer, who had died in that same uh, time frame before Eddie died. There was Johnny Runge. And it was just, you know, especially the crazy thing, and we're going to get into the next part, the the... They died really young. Eddie Guerrero was only 38 years old when he died. And Ray Trailer uh, was only 42, 43 when he died. So, I mean, and again, we will talk about, you know, as Cam had mentioned, steroids and alcohol, just a very deadly combination. But Benoit would wrestle for a few more years afterward. But again, he never got over the death of his best friend. And in fact, it was revealed that he kept a diary where he would write to Eddie months and months after he was dead. ECW, the company Benoit previous worked with in the United States, was brought out in the WWE in 2001. And in 2006, it was configured as a brand for up-and-coming talent. Benoit was placed there uh, in June 2007, and he was pretty much designed to be the wily and helpful veteran who was going to help with the younger wrestlers. And on June 19, 2007, Benoit would wrestle in what would be his final match, uh, beating Elijah Burke in a number one contender uh, tournament to see who was going to compete for the vacated ECW championship on Vengeance, the company's pay-per-view that was going to be held on June 24th. But Benoit had missed those weekend house shows he later told WWE uh, officials that his wife and son were vomiting blood due, due to food poisoning. When he failed to show up for the pay-per-view, viewers were informed that he was unable to complete due to a family emergency. And, you know, that... Uh, and we'll get on... Uh, um, again, on the second part, but uh, this kind of really alarmed a lot of people in the back because... Chris Benoit had that reputation as someone who he he if the one adjective that they uh, 
a verb, whatever the hell, it's a long name, but it was respect. And he would never, you know, he would never show down, especially a live event that is shown before millions of people. So, I mean, that, it, it was a really red flag to a lot of people. And um, so much, and it got to the next day, they still hadn't heard what happened to Chris. See, also, too, throwing up blood from food poisoning. Um, I've had food poisoning and the E. coli breakout bullshit, which I was sick for a fucking week just puking. And I never puked up blood. So I don't know if that's a red flag or what. I don't know the technicalities behind food poisoning, if you can puke up blood. I'm sure you can, but I feel like that's a really extreme case, too. Um, but back, back to the story. Um, the next day, on June 25th, 2007, WWE, more, specific, uh, more specifically, um, the WWE Senior Vice President of Talent Relations was actually notified of a text message sent to Chavo Guerrero, a wrestler, the nephew of Eddie and uh, Benoit's best friend, and Scott Armstrong, a referee and another of Benoit's friends. The company asked Fayette County's uh, Sheriff's Department to check on the Benoit family. The sheriff's assigned to the welfare check arrived at Benoit residence around 2.30 p.m., where they met Holly uh, Shrefford, a neighbor of the Benoit's. She was actually concerned after she saw the family's dog unattended outside for days. And it was to the point she tried to call Nancy over and over to no avail. The cops ended up unlocking the gate and Holly got into the residence through the garage door, which was actually left open. And she could tell right away on an 82 degree day in the summer, the cooling system was off in their house. And it, very, very powerful and distinct odor emanating in the air. And let me tell you, it was a very specific odor. She ended up going upstairs to Daniel's room, and the room was filled. Posters, championship belts, action figures, all of the all the shebang. The kid pretty much worshipped his father like this place was a damn shrine. And it was in the room that Holly, the neighbor, found Daniel, who was seemingly sleeping. But when she looked closer... She saw Daniel's face was discolored and dried. A foam was all over his nose. So frantic now, Holly is running down the stairs to the family office room where Nancy usually occupied. And like Daniel's room, it was filled with a bunch of memorabilia such as uh, plaques, baseball hats, commemorating WrestleMania's past, framed photos. And it was there that Holly found Nancy lying on her right side of the hardwood floor with an oversized rug covering everything except her hand and her feet. Her hands were shown eventually to be tied behind her back near her shoulder blades with a coaxial cable, and her feet were tied with an electric charger. Like Daniel, Nancy's face was discolored, blue and black, her stomach was bloated, and her arms were in an advanced stage of decomposition. And for some reason, a Bible was placed on her body as the same was for a children's Bible in the case of Danny was placed on his bed. That's really, really interesting. And after seeing all this traumatic shit, Holly ran out of that crib. She was crying to the police that Daniel and Nancy had been murdered, and she couldn't find Chris. The deputies would look into the residence after seeing the two dead bodies. They headed into the basement where the police found Chris, 
sitting upright in the bench-weighted lifting machine with a black nylon cable, which was strung around his neck, and a towel was wrapped around the cable to keep him from cutting cutting his skin. Which is interesting, because if he was to murder himself, murder himself, excuse me, to kill himself, why would he care on cutting his neck? I don't know, but to do this also, the cable was actually being attached by 150 pounds of weight and they complete with two 40 pound dumbbells on each side. So pretty much you had to be a strong motherfucker with a strong motherfucking neck to put yourself in that position and, and to let yourself just, ugh. And as Irv Munchnik noted in his book, Chris and Nancy, Pro Wrestling's Cocktail of Death, clearly he had to put much thought um, and discipline into hanging himself in a near-perfect position, not only to ensure a successful hanging, but also to maximize the pain he must have intended to inflict on himself in the process. And further investigation shows that there is no sign of forced entry. So it's pretty apparent that this is shaping up to be a murder-suicide. But there was no suicide note at the crime scene. However, police did find a note that was sent to uh, Benoit's first wife in Canada. According to uh, Chris Benoit's father, Michael Benoit, stated he had a handwritten notation in there saying, I'm preparing to leave this earth. Now, WWE uh, was the... WWE had requested the Fayette County Sheriff's Department to do a welfare check on uh, Benoit after not hearing from him a couple of days. So after um, when the Fayette, that's the sheriffs, I mean, as the deputies found uh, that, you know, that horrific crime scene, they reported it to uh, the head of Canada operations, Chris DeMarco, WWE, who would eventually tell the company, um, John Laronitis, the executive vice president of talent operations, and company uh, company owner Vince McMahon of the details, and on this website, the WWE stated that quote World Wrestling Entertainment is deeply saddened to report to today Chris Benoit and his family were found dead in their home. There are no further details at this time, other than the Benoit family residence is currently being investigated by local authorities. Tonight's Raw on the USA Network was served as a tribute to Chris Benoit and his family, and um. I remember the night that uh, that happened. Um, as crazy as it sounds, that uh, Raw show on June 25th was supposed to be a memorial for uh, Vince McMahon's character, Mr. McMahon. So a couple of weeks ago, so that's my controller going down. A couple of weeks ago, he was um, he went in his limo, and it was like this huge explosion and they tried to make it seem that he was dead and a lot of people bought it so much that donald trump was to have called vince mcmahon and said oh my god is he really dead but like yeah so i remember me uh my two brothers and my sister we were down in my older brother's room and we're getting ready to watch this memorial show for for mr mcmahon it's like oh my god Cause he, you know, cause we know he's not dead. I mean, we know, look, as wrestling fans, we suspend our disbelief, and yes, it's fake. But so is Game of Thrones, and so is Walking Dead. So, like, even though you guys know that's not real, it's 
you suspend again. You suspend that disbelief. And it's like, oh man, we'll it's see your how this... fantasy. Yeah, yeah. It's your you want to see how this, you want to see how the story comes out. And I remember when they had the it, it, the beginning. They open, and I see that we see this visual in memory of Chris Benoit, and it's just a collective gasp, like, oh my god, what the fuck? And it was just like just total shock, total disbelief. It's oh, like. My God, this can't be real. I'm pinching myself like, no. And like, Chris Benoit was one of my, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a, a character like, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. He wasn't a character like The Rock or a Shawn Michaels. Like he, he had like a quiet, you know, aura about him, but he, you know, the, the way he told a story in the ring by not even saying anything, but just the way he wrestled, the way, you know, he sold, and the way, you know, again, he mm-hmm. fought back and stuff, it, you know, it really resonated, that underdog mentality, and, you know, I really resonated with Chris Benoit, and, I mean, it was just a very huge shock, and it was like, what the fuck? So, um, they replaced the broadcast version with a tribute to Chris Benoit's life and career, and they feature past matches. They feature segments from his DVD, Hard Knocks, The Crispin Wall Story. And they show comments from wrestlers and announcers from Raw, SmackDown, and ECW, where Benoit had worked at the time, uh, the Brands. And this is where things get really interesting. Shortly after the program aired, many of the aired comments were posted on WWE.com. It was not until the program was in the third hour that media outlets reported the deaths were being investigated. There was a very ominous sign on the change mood, as evidenced in William Regal, a former colleague of Benoit, who said in his tribute, I'm going to reserve judgment until all the facts come out. And the next night after some of the details of his death became available, uh, the company had air- aired a recorded statement by WWE owner uh, McMahon before the ECW broadcast. Uh, I can't even do a good Vince McMahon. Yeah, I could even, goddamn pal. Good evening, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Last night on Monday Night Raw, the WWE presented a special tribute show recognizing the career of Chris Benoit. However, some 26 hours later, the facts of this horrific tragedy are now apparent. Therefore, other than my comments, there will be no mention of Mr. Benoit's name tonight. On the contrary, tonight's show will be dedicated to everyone who has been affected by this terrible incident. This evening marks the first step of the healing process. Tonight, WWE performers will do what they do better than anyone else in the world. Entertain you. And WWE goes on to erase Chris Benoit. And the way you erase the first love that breaks your heart. Or the way the Cubs did Sammy Sosa. Or the way ABC did with Roseanne. That level of erasing, of erasing is what we're talking about. With the exception of his results and listings in WWE's title history, um, though the summaries of his title reigns have actually been removed, and select press releases from WWE's corporate uh, subsite, the WWE website removed all past mentions of Benoit, including all news articles relating to specific details of the incident, as well as his biography and the video tribute comments from Benoit's peers. WWE actually pulled the tribute episode from international markets, 
which aired raw on tape delay basis. Several channels announced the episode was being withheld for actual legal reasons. A substitute Raw hosted by Todd uh, Grisham from WWE Studios was created featuring recaps of WWE Championship and World Heavyweight Championship matches, which had occurred over the past year. And yeah, and this is like um, in 2014, uh, WWE um, started their uh, WWE Network, and it's pretty much like... It's like Netflix for wrestling fans. It's like every every pay-per-view in the company's history, every show, at least from the last 30 or so years, like it's on there, including like stuff with Benoit. And there was a lot of speculation of, are they going to edit it and not show Benoit? Or like, because it would just be a very kind of an awkward thing because Benoit, especially when we talked about, you know, he was a, he was a, you know, a huge figure in the early to mid 2000s, especially winning on the main event of WrestleMania 20. And that was a very, you know, landmark show in its own self. So what they did was they've actually let, uh, they aired the, um, the the original shows featuring Benoit as it was, but like we do, they had a disclaimer, like a really special disclaimer, to reiterate that you know the the this is what what the the all wrestlers and actors and, yeah. yeah, so it's just like huh, and they have like little you know taglines where they can say say okay John Cena versus Randy Orton. Or Triple H versus The Undertaker. You can go to the right there, but when it shows a Benoit match, it just skips it. You can't go right to it. You it's it's very hard to find a Benoit match. And then like if you look for him, like you can search for wrestlers and you'll find him, which you can't do that with Chris Benoit. But yeah. That's so fucking weird. Yeah. It, you it, know what's weird? It 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 shows how much time the same from the 90s to now, just simply people realizing the effects of sports, people are realizing the effects of mental illness and really trying to take it into consideration rather than mm-hmm. erasing everything somebody's worked for. Right. And I think it's one of those things is that especially with, there's this huge debate uh, with among wrestling fans of, and even, you know, former wrestlers and, and insiders in the industry should Benoit you know, be welcomed back in WWE and should he be inducted in the WWE Hall of Fame? Because he, he had a Hall of Fame career. You know, he won almost every title there was to want, to win. He had a long career, a, a respected career. He was influential to a lot, a, a lot of wrestlers. And, you know, it's, it's very divisive. Like, you will find petitions online every year. Chris Benoit Hall of Fame. To, to, can you put Chris Benoit in the Hall of Fame 2019? And there's like is at least OJ a couple Simpson of thousand people. Is in the Hall of Fame? Huh? Is OJ Simpson still in the Hall of Fame? He's still in the Hall of Fame, yeah. Okay, Benoit, as much as I don't... I'm not a supporter for murder or anything in that sense. Mm-hmm. But your career is separate from your family life. Right. However... In this situation, they mix due to the effects of your brain when you beat up your brain with mm-hmm. drugs, alcohol, constant abuse. However, 
he did work his butt off to, mm-hmm. for his career, and he does deserve to be recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it reminds, like I was stating earlier, it reminds me of how football used to be. It's There are many players that have taken their life right. due to the effects of what football has on the brain. It's not saying that person's a bad person. It's just their brain turns to mush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we don't want to, you know, uh, and something that we're really going to cover in detail in that second part. But just one little quick thing about like the Hall of Fame, and I think one of the one of the really kind of like fascinating tidbits that I got when it comes to Chris Bowden discussion, um, Hall of Fame announcer and former uh, vice president of talent relations for WWE, Jim Ross, was asked in a no in this podcast he had he covered this topic. And he said no, but also he said Chris Benoit himself would not, you know, if it was up to him, Chris Benoit would not uh, want himself to be in the Hall of Fame because if he did, we're not going to be focusing on the 20 years and he did he did in the business. But we're gonna it's gonna be a lot of attention on those two days, those those last three days of his life. I mean, if it, if it happened that. They, the WWE decided to put induct Chris Benoit in the Hall of Fame. That's gonna be on ev. That's gonna be a story that's gonna be on every fucking channel, and oh, not yeah. for the good reasons. But it, it's it reminds me of one of those things is we have history mm-hmm. written down for a reason. Right. So it, you can't correct history if you don't continue to learn about it, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um. Putting Benoit in the Hall of Fame, I mean, he, he worked for it. He worked right. his butt off for it. But it's also a good reminder of how far we've come with mental illness and mm-hmm. getting help. And it, and it, yeah, I think it's one of those things that could be like a cautionary tale, right? Yeah. It's a good eye-opener to what can happen and what does happen and, you know, how to avoid that and stuff. You know, he's still still worked his ass off and did what he did and broke records. So he still should technically be in the Hall of Fame. Yep. Granted, you yeah. know, granted the circumstances. Right. But, but, um, but here's the thing, and and as we were doing the research, and this is like, you know, WWE, you know, they have to do play damage control, as they should. Like, one of their marquee performers just did this horrific crime. But as it turns out, according to phone records provided in Much Next Book, the WWE knew not only of Benoit being found dead in their home as early as 4 p.m. Eastern, mm-hmm. but they knew the details of the investigation that this was a double murder-suicide. And they had three hours, camp before they had to go on the USA Network, sitting on this bombshell of the news, and they decide to do a tribute to a fucking killer my, without without mind you telling they do any, they do. any of their employees in fact Dylan Postel a WWE a, a former WWE performer uh, who wrestled and managed as Hornswoggle can't believe I was going to do a, a podcast and mention Hornswoggle but well described in a 2017 interview of what McMahon told his performers uh, Vince told us that as far as he knew, someone broke into the Benoit house, killed his wife, 
son, and Chris. And I mean, if we just leave it at that, I mean, that, I would say that's just a fucking atrocity of a decision made by a company. And it's easy to kind of make that assessment hindsight 2020. I mean, you know, you got this, this big ass, you know, story that just hits you like a ton of rocks. What the fuck am I going to do? But I mean, there could have been other ways to be handled. Like, oh yeah, well it's it's again it's a huge huge celebrity at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see where they would think of breaking because didn't the neighbors say the door was open? Mm-hmm. The garage door. So that's a little fishy. Um, yeah. However, it... Chris Benoit isn't a little dude, so like I don't see someone forcing him to do what he did. Right. Um, I think it's just people want answers, you know? It's, mm-hmm. And you know what? And, and, that's the thing. and uh, that said, this is going to be it for our part one, and we're going to come back to that ass for part two uh, tomorrow night, same time. And yeah, we're actually going to get a lot of shit. We're going to talk about the motives. We're going to talk about uh, actual conspiracies that some believe that Chris Benoit did not murder his wife and son, but in fact, he was murdered alongside his family. Um, and we're also going to talk about like the media coverage that was just really, and we we talked about it earlier with uh, Nancy Disgrace and Gerardo that uh, it is... Does anything. I got I hate Nancy. Uh, 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 uh. But I mean, we're, it, it's going to, you know, we, it is a lot of stuff to cover. And we're going to talk about, you know, the toxicology reports and the what was found in the system and just more of WWE and what they could have done better. And, you know, this is a lot, you know, that one episode and one part can't do. So that said, um, again, we're going to be back. And this is just part one. So we're going to, you think that's this is big now? Oh, does it get a more of a shit Get ready, bitches. Oh, so... On that note, um, no, it's just, I hate to end suddenly, but we'll leave all that stuff for the second part. And that said, guys, um, again, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, come back tomorrow. If you're probably listening, you're going to listen at a later time, you'll probably hit us right. Oh, man, part one is part two. Boom. So, I mean. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> so, on that note, uh, we'll be back in a jiffy. And I hope you guys are there too. Be there or be killed, bitches. Indeed.